Good afternoon and welcome to this week's edition of Navara FM, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's most singular and most distinctive of radio stations. I am James Butler and let me just say a little bit about Resonance FM at the top of the show here. I know a lot of our listeners like to listen live when they can and a lot are regular Resonance listeners anyway, but there are also, I think, a lot of you who listen by podcast or who don't necessarily tune in to the rest that the station has to offer. And let me tell you, you're missing out. Uh, I just bought a new DAB radio and tuning the dial to Resonance is like an oasis in uh, in the middle of an aural desert. In the last week, I've caught lecture recordings on Palestinian resistance, uh, a fabulous show on electronic music from Macedonia, and late lunch with the brilliant and polemical Ben Watson. And genuinely, we, Navarra Media, wouldn't be where we are without their support. And listening to Resonance FM will expand your consciousness, turn you onto things you had no idea you loved, and even make the world that little bit more interesting. And one of the reasons I'm saying this is that the Resonance FM fundraiser is running very soon, and we'll be raising money for it. Resonance needs cash not only to keep operating, but also to move premises. Uh, so explore uh, the station, uh, drop in. Uh, to the Resonance FM website and keep an eye on our Facebook and our Twitter where we'll show you how to give. Um, now, on with the show, and I'm delighted to be joined in the studio today by Liz Fakiti, who's the director of the Institute of Race Relations and author of the new book, Europe's Fault Lines, Racism and the Rise of the Right. And the book is a comprehensive look at the development of the movements of reaction across the continent uh, and what anchors their rise in the uneven development and austerity warfare of the European economy. That approach, interwe interweaving the analysis of racism with economic structure, is no surprise to anyone who's familiar with the work of the IRR and its brilliant house journal, Race and Class, and the work of one of its moving spirits, A.C. Vernanden, who sadly passed away just a couple of weeks ago. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm also joined, of course, by Navarra Media's wickedest and most incisive of editors who takes down racist left, right and radical centre, uh, the inestimable Ash Sarkar. Hi. Wagwan. <laughs> I wanted to begin, kind of just as the book does really, just by asking, you know, uh, maybe... Uh, just for a wide kind of survey of the kinds of racist movement rising in Europe today. And the book begins kind of with Breivik. Um, this is the, the guy who murdered um, young people who were staying at a Labour Party camp in Ireland in Norway. Um, does this mark kind of a new phase of fascist and far-right movements and what distinguishes them from their predecessors? I think at the moment where everybody's sort of fixated with the alternative right, obviously with uh, Trump's election, it's good to kind of take a sort of step back and look at the variety of forces there are out there. I mean, the alt-right is a relatively new phenomenon. Um, they... <laughs> are on the sort of borderline of uh, legality... Maybe uh, listeners will have heard of the Defend Europe campaign in the Mediterranean where they crowdfunded a boat, went out on the Mediterranean to harass people, made complete fools of themselves, which was no surprise. Um, so, yeah, you have the alt-right um, 
who are sort of white nationalists, come out of the identitarian movement. But you also have a plethora of other movements. You mentioned Breivik. Breivik was very much influenced by the counter-jihadi strain of uh, far-right thinking, which in many ways is a kind of modern version of anti-Semitism, except for the same tropes and ideas are projected against Muslims. Um, but even though you have these modern strains, you have, you know, very, very old uh, old strains. And, and in fact, there's nothing new. There's nothing mm. new about the... Uh, ideas and views these groups peddles. So you still have the neo-Nazi movements uh, very worryingly, quite clearly preparing for race war. Uh, the book charts many horrendous, murderous uh, activities around Europe. Uh, in particular, I'd like to mention the National Socialist Underground in Germany, uh, a campaign that I've been very, very involved with, supporting both the lawyers and the NSU Watch, which involved a, a, a a neo-Nazi cell who went out and over a number of years murdered uh, at least 11 people, carried out many, many uh, bomb attacks, uh, were stockpiling guns, etc. And the, the victims were mostly from the German-Turkish community. The police ended up investigating the Turkish community. Some of the murders were called the Donna Kebab murders. So you have that interplay between the far right and institutionalised mm. racism in the police. And one of the central points of Europe's fault lines is that we're looking at the far right the wrong way. We're looking at the far right in terms of the government's counter-extremism model, which makes it very useful to look at different forms of extremism in society while leaving the state and the institutions out of the picture. And the central point of a book is the most worrying development in terms of the far right is the danger of collusion between the police, the military intelligence services and aspects of the far right. And in the NSU case, collusion has been central to the campaign to get justice for the families because we now know that the intelligence services and the police had infiltrated the far right scene and that information about the NSU was not passed back to the authorities. So, yeah, I'm hoping that this whole idea of collusion that I put at the centre of the book will open our eyes up to a kind of different way of interpreting what's going on. I mean, I've got to say that I found the book tremendously valuable. I found it politically useful, but I also found it refreshing because one of the things that seems to me to be unfortunately a notable absence from dominant, I wouldn't even call it anti-racist discourse, I would just call it race discourse, is the insistence on a material analysis, an analysis of capital, and historicize everything. So my question for you is a really simple one, because one of the things that I loved about your book is that you never use terminology casually. You always explained your choice of descriptors. You historicize that terminology. So my question for you is, when you talk about race, what do you mean by race? Oh, thank you, Ash, for saying such nice things. Uh, <laughs> give me a bit of time uh, to think about how you answer, I answer your question. Okay, I'm thinking back to the book, and I'm not sure that I actually talk about race a lot in the book. Um, I might talk about the way the media constructs race, or I might talk about the way 
the far right and the elements of the anti-extremism movement, anti-immigration movements, I should say, around Europe try to promote culture wars around race. But I think my particular vantage point is not to describe race and the narratives, but is to describe the material reality of racism. So I hope that doesn't sound like I'm sidestepping your question, but maybe another way of answering it is to say, how do I understand racism? And um, you mentioned, James mentioned that sadly our our founding director, uh, A. Sivanandan, known to his friend as, as Siva, passed away uh, two weeks ago. And um, his thinking has really been important to me because Siva always used to say that racism never stands still. It changes its shape, its contours in terms of changes in the economy, in the culture, etc. But above all, in terms of changes in the resistances to racism. So throughout the book, I'm trying to hopefully show people that racism is changing. It isn't just the old skin-based racism. It's uh, often a non-colour-coded racism in terms of xeno-racism. So you see the mobilisation of fear of foreigners, but not just the mobilisation of fear of foreigners, the creation of structures that um, uh, exclude, marginalise and discriminate against particular communities. So I think the various forms of racism... I'm looking at racism in the biggest context possible. And in that sense, I'm looking at race in the biggest context because I think one of our problems is that we're in silos at the moment. And if you're looking at racism across Europe, you're seeing that it's many ways coming from the same roots, but it's affecting different people in different in different parts of Europe. If you're in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, it's mainly anti-Roma racism, uh, Islamophobia as well, but very much Islamophobia with barely any Muslim community, mm. Muslim communities. So it's the uh, anti-migrant, the Afri- anti-refugee and the anti-Roma racism that comes to the fore, which isn't necessarily uh, a colour-coded racism. Um, but then, you know, obviously, if you look here in, in the uh, UK, I think I'm fo- focusing very much on uh, anti-refugee racism and racism, also, of course, anti-black racism and Islamophobia. So I guess... Not only do I think that I'm trying to broaden our understanding of racism, I'm also trying to tell people, look, guys and girls out there, we do need to prioritise. We do need to build infrastructures and organisations that are capable of challenging this brutal racism, not just in terms of a narrative, but in terms of a material reality. And that's why I start with the cases that they affect the poorest, the most marginalised and the most vulnerable communities around Europe, because you're going to experience racism differently if you're a, a refugee living in a a camp with rats and and uh, you know barely any facilities in in Lesbos. Then if you're you know you're you're a, a you know a quite well established um, member of the community working in a, a good job with a high income, it doesn't mean that you don't experience prejudice and you don't experience discrimination. But 
we have to start with protecting the most vulnerable, and I feel that very strongly. And you could have just said Trevor Phillips's name. You'll know who you're talking about, Liz. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I think one of the things that I found really uh, useful in the book is, is precisely taking up that insight from, from Sivananda and saying, you know, that the, the, the racism is always on the move, that it always transforms, that it is, you know, that, that, and that it manifests differently. Um, you know, that this kind of quite careful analysis of these different... Uh, kind of ideological strains of racism. So on the one hand, you have kind of quite an explicit fascist revivalism in some places. So for instance, bits of Germany, um, you know, really, really striking stories from Germany, not just the kind of NSU stuff, but, you know, uh, you know, right up to including um, a, a kind of murder I didn't know about in a courtroom, which was a, a, this kind of astonishing, mm-hmm. astonishing story and yeah. astonishing and very distressing yeah. Uh, that was Mabel El Shabini, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah she yeah. was a Muslim woman who was actually. Sorry to interrupt yeah, no, the question, please, but I just wanted on. to give the listeners this uh, this this tragic story. And um, what happened was she was abused by a, a neo-Nazi sympathizer in a park when she was uh, with her young child, and um, she was abused on account of wearing the hijab. And actually, I think the police encouraged her to take a case to court. And what happened in court was, I mean, you know listeners will feel all the sort of double standards here is that the uh, perpetrator smuggled a huge knife in his rucksack into the court. You can't really imagine a sort of, you know, Muslim defendant um, smuggling a huge knife in. And while she was giving testimony, he sort of plunged over and actually stabbed her to death. Um, Her husband leapt to her defence and then the court policeman came in and uh, thought it was a domestic violence case and actually shot her husband, not the Nazi. I mean, he survived. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know. No, but I think it, it really brings together the way in which like these kind of permanent uh, and institutional structures mm. uh, have that have that kind of double um, you know dub, double relationship and you know that kind of permanent you know, the ideological transformations over the course of the twentieth century. They're not nothing, right? Like we have won some victories, such that the police feel compelled to say you know bring this case well at the same time the incomplete victory mm-hmm. means that this kind of stuff happens um so so i think that's important but the, the thing that struck me was the difference between so those movements which are very kind of explicitly drawing on uh fascist heritage uh differ from for instance the the forms of kind of ultra-right racism in the uk which often figures itself as anti-fascist right Mm -hmm. so in defense of uh, either you know israel or uh of you know so for instance you know the thing that sticks in my mind is the edl used to have an lgbt division now this is just like one rather sad Mm -hmm. young man it's like they always have a sikh division and it's the one (laughs) sikh guy who's in every far-right organization and i'm like i see you hardeep don't think i don't I mean, it's 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 but it's really shocking because I remember thinking, you know, there's no, you know, there's no way that that these people are actually not homophobic. And you listen to you you go on EDL chat rooms and you see it's all kind of very kind of classical right wings. So there is this kind of doubleness and this kind of this 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 far right, you know, this far right culture in Britain that thinks of itself as anti-fascist while also having, I think, a continuing relationship maybe with the the fascist movements there are still because there are mm. still sort of neo neo fascist movements in the UK but but groups like the EDL strike me as something a bit different and then there's something different again which is the kind of identitarian or even the sort of uh grievance based stuff that that resulted in Le Pen in 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 France or the stuff that she was kind of 
drawing on. So, so I wonder, I wonder whether that's that's where the really most concerning stuff is, right? Where it makes itself kind of institutionally respectable, um, or, and even exerts, I guess, a kind of drag on on kind of you know political, you know, a, a kind of gravitational pull on political parties. Um, mm-hmm. Is that something that 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 you see? Yes, but I also see that playing out with wider trends. Um, the book isn't just dealing with the sort of far right, and it's not just dealing with institutional uh, racism. As Ash said, it is trying to p- provide a material analysis as well. And exactly the same trends that you're talking about in terms of the defence leagues in Europe and um, some of the identitarian movements, because there's a split. You have your old-style neo-Nazis, your old-style authoritarians who are socially conservative. You have the new ones that are will say, on paper at least, that they're, they're socially liberal. But that's just mirroring. Mm. That's just mirroring the mainstream, isn't it? And the book is situating this in terms of globalisation. And if you look at the... Uh, the sort of multinational companies, if you look at the rich elites who are profiting from global circuits of capital and the global financial market, you will see that at a very superficial level, at the level of this narrative that um, I said was for me a troubling term, that they manipulate narrative to actually say we are socially liberal. They will sell products on the basis of a beautiful black woman's face. Okay, they make their uh, stupid, idiotic uh, cultural mistakes into sense, but that is what they're trying to project. They're trying to project that they are liberal in terms of gay rights, um, in terms of uh, women's rights, but it's such an easily incorporated narrative. Which we're, we're willing to exploit you regardless yes, of your background. Yes, yes, we could, well, you know, racism, as Steve says, racism change, but racism change is all the better to exploit people mm-hmm. and all the better to oppress people. But so this is why we have to be incredibly important in our anti-racist movements, that we don't follow the zeitgeist, if you like, uh, that we try and move to something which isn't shallow, which isn't superficial, um, which doesn't look for the easy... Uh, easy answers because the whole history of anti-racism the whole history of any of our struggles against any oppression or against any exploitation shows us that the institutions that we're up against are quite capable of assimilating aspects of our argument and what we're out for is transformation we're out for transformative change we're not out to uh, make society a little bit less racist we're out to to create an anti-racist society but we have to be aware that aspects of our movement can be assimilated i mean i'll give you a little uh, anecdote which for me uh, just shows you um, the power of co-option and also the dangers of very shallow analyses of what combating racism might look like so uh baroness amos is um I don't know what her title actually is, but basically in charge at SOAS. Provost? Yeah. What's like, like that. so, yeah. what's so Asian for Provost? I'm you're coming at this with my UCL language. Yeah. Anyway. She's not um, vice chancellor, she's. 
something else. Something okay. Like that. I yeah. You know. You know, the Don, you know, the Don Corleone uh, <laughs> of SOAS, uh, Baroness Amos. And there's been a long-running decolonize the curriculum um, group at SOAS. And some of that has been staff-led, some of that's been student-led. And, you know, Baroness Amos is not a stupid woman. She's actually very steeped in this particular intellectual tradition. She wrote a very good essay about imperial feminism back in the day. And... She put on a decolonize SOAS day, which I thought was astonishing. When you look at some of the employment practices which have flourished under um, her stewardship of the university, which disproportionately affect um, precarious migrant labor. So the constant battle to bring cleaners in house, you know, she's very anti bringing cleaners in house you also think about her time as part of new labor right i mean i'm sure her pursuit of you know drone warfare in iraq was intersectional but that shows you i think the shallowness of some of these demands how effectively they can be co-opted and unfortunately it did i think really um you know corrupt the radical heart of that demand and since then lots of the measures which are um being advocated as part of decolonize us are completely um indistinct from what demands to diversify it would be mm. that sense of a radical mm. interrogation of the institution it's mm. functioning and what it's for simply isn't there but i wanted to ask you about one particular chapter of your book mm. uh, where you talk about white grievance and i enjoy this chapter tremendously because mm. As, you know, we've talked about how your book is a material analysis, but it does also tell some stories through the language of political emotion. And I think that's really useful. And normally when we talk about white grievance, it's contained to discussions of the white working class. And it's always framed as white working class to the point that it might as well just be one word. Um, and it, you know, looks at the left behind, the forgotten citizens of globalization, da 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 But what you did, I thought, was a very interesting um, twist, which was you looked at how a sense of white grievance is nurtured at the heart of power and is articulated in civilizational terms. So you talked about how um, I think David Cameron's 2009 speech from Cheltenham was about, you know, we haven't been proud enough of our liberal traditions. And there's this kind of um, contradiction at the heart of this project between uh, an avowal of muscular liberalism and the illiberal uh, practices used to promote that or um, justify it under that rubric. So I wondered if you could expand on that a bit, that kind of liberal, illiberal tussle um, occurring at the heart of power when it comes to structural racism. Hmm. Um, I was concentrating on the first part when you were describing the... Uh, the chapter in the book. Mm -hmm. So maybe if I just say a little bit mm -hmm. about that and then you give me a nudge so that I can sort of work out how to fit it into the, sure, no the, last, the last bit of what you're saying. Um, what Ash was referring to was a chapter in the book which looks at the uh, EU-funded counter-radicalisation programmes for basically fascists. Um, uh, these are called exit programmes and... 
these have been set up in most uh, countries. I think everybody will remember, or hopefully they remember, or if they don't remember, I'll tell them, um, the whole sort of fiasco when uh, Tommy Robinson said that he'd left the EDL and the Quilliam Foundation were organising his exit. Um, that was short-term indeed. It didn't <laughs> last very long, did it? No, Tommy's quite good at manipulating the system, which was basically what this chapter was about. It was showing how... Um, uh, all the European countries were having a different standard for extreme extreme fascist nationalists who happened to be mostly young white white working class men and um, uh, it, what they would define as Islamist uh, extremists. So these exit programs um, were actually creating a various uh, amount of, of rewards, and they were treating young white working class. Uh, men as lost sheep, prodigal sons uh, who must be returned to the fold. And it was actually saying that some of their grievances around issues like immigration were understandable, which was kind of like, well, you know, what about mm, grievances with Muslim communities around sort of foreign policy? Is that understandable? So it was, it, it was basically a chapter showing that there was a, different, a double standard. Um, but also... I think what I was trying to get at is I couldn't understand why this term, we're going to the narrative again, how they use narratives, white working class has become an acceptable term because, you know, why are... Um, it goes back to your first question about race. Why are they creating a race out of the working class? Why are they racialising the working class all the time? I have a take on this. Yes, oh, well, we'll have that. <laughs> yeah. So, OK, we'll hear your take and then I'll try and get it back. But, I mean, yeah, but the question was, you know, what about black working class? And, I, I mean, is there a discrete white working class, black working mm. class? Isn't there a multicultural working class out there? So this was the kind of question, and I suppose it goes back to your point about muscular muscular liberalism um and that's a, again it's a central i hope it's a central theme of the book that comes out is you know i think you mentioned cameron when he made his uh, he made you know he made the series of speeches he was talking about state doctrine of multiculturalism and then he was saying you know if we want to continue our liberal society we basically have to be a bit more muscular about it and these are all terms that disguise the fact that we are moving in towards an illiberal society, but we are moving towards an illiberal society on the basis of uh, pretending that we're defending liberal values. I'm not quite sure what sort of state we're moving to. I don't think we can say that we're living in welfare states anymore because so much of the welfare state has been dismantled. I wouldn't go as far as to say that... Um, you know, we are seeing a return of fascism from the 1930s because the situation is different, the economics are different today. But we are certainly moving into something very authoritarian and very illiberal. And let's hear what Ash has got to say. I mean, my take about uh, this formulation of the white working class, for me, it's really instructive to look at the kind of origins of state multiculturalism because such a thing did exist and it was the product of government funding implementing quite not all but some of the findings of the Scarman report post 1985 and I think that what it was the result of was a concerted and targeted political project to decouple 
the redistributive demands of anti-racism from the representational demands of anti-racism. So you stop thinking in terms of uh, a structural realignment of the economy or of the distribution of resources, and you start thinking brown faces in high places, you start thinking about how you make people feel a sense of belonging rather than really belonging. And once that happens... I think that it means that you can only talk about class through the kind of kaleidoscope of multiculturalism. Mm. So mm. the white working class aren't um, a class as such, right? It's the working class bit is underemphasized. It's whiteness that mm. kind of, um, you know, is the is the operative word here or the meaningful word. Um, and it's it's interesting to me to kind of, think about how that's as much a product of state multiculturalism as at the same time you've got, you know, Angela Rayner saying that these are those who've been screwed over by multiculturalism, left behind mm. by it, is that my arguments that's yeah. really a result well, of I think multiculturalism. This is the point that the way that the where we are now is that actually in terms of the far right um understanding and in terms of the understanding of social conservatives the white working class are treated as the forgotten race the lost mm. tribe um and that fits into your uh, point about multiculturalism in fact the institute of race relations where i work and i'm sorry to mention sivinandan again but it does More so, than okay. <laughs> uh, it really does come out of uh, his writings and how he saw it ash was he was writing about this at the time i mean i came into the institute um around 1981 i was a young anti-fascist i wasn't particularly well educated um for some reasons saw something of value in me which i'm eternally grateful for but at that time siva was writing about the um the state's response to the 1981 uprisings. And um, I think, I mean, Siva wrote a pamphlet called From Resistance to Rebellion, which was a history of the Asian and African-Caribbean communities and the African community's struggles against racism. And what he felt was up till 1981, the black community in a political sense were a community for a class. But that after 1981, Thatcher brought in, I think he would have, we wouldn't have called it multiculturalism or he wouldn't have. He saw it as culturalism or mm. ethnicism. So her response to the, to the uprisings was to actually try to um, support Asian, African, Caribbean businesses, to try to create, um, to ease some aspects of uh, racism, the racism that discriminates because or we believe at the Institute that there are two racisms. There's a racism that discriminates and the racism that kills. I think she wanted us to become more like the United States and 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 ease some aspects of of racism um, to to allow a diversification in ethnic businesses, uh, you know, more uh, people getting into the professional classes, etc., which isn't wrong in itself, but it's created a kind Kind of divide and rule it broke down that sort of unity that existed and I think in fact what we see today and I mean I think where my work is definitely leading on is that 
you know, having written this book on Europe's fault lines, I'm really, really concerned to come back to the UK because mm. the first work I ever did in the Institute uh, was around um, police violence and yeah. police racism. And I think if we see what young black men are going through uh, in this society, it's so marginalised the incarceration rates. In that other sense, we've become more like America, that you have a, uh, a working class, a poor black, Muslim, Asian, uh, migrant working class who are increasingly just being thrown into prison, forgotten. So uh, just to go back to that, that, that what, what you're saying about multiculturalism, I think we analysed it as culturalism and ethnicism, and we were against that. And Sivan Nandan was against that. And I think he felt it so keenly because, you know, you've got to realise he was born in 1924. He lived through colonialism. And he saw how colonialism in Sri Lanka, in India and other countries set up common, almost like forums where sort of the natives would be represented by different ethnic leaders. And, you know, Britain is an old colonial power mm. and it does have a collective memory there is a collective memory both in terms of the way that the state uh, as a colonial power responds to problems with majority minority communities but also in the collective consciousness of institutions like the police which have always had a separate form of policing for black communities for Irish communities uh, for for Roma for gypsy communities and that's separate form of policing came out of colonialism and came out of a counterinsurgency approach. So, oops, sorry about that. So, just catching my breath there, getting a bit excited. That was really, like, (laughs) the sickest freestyle that I've heard on this radio station. It was just, like fire in the booth but politically speaking. Oh, thank you. But um, the important point is that after the war on terror and 9-11 when you saw um, the politicians and the state attacking multiculturalism for different reasons than we were attacking it as cultural and ethnicism, then the reality changed and everybody had to go out and say, no, we have to protect the multicultural reality, the multicultural society, which is different from saying we are going to support cultural and ethnicist mm. state policies. I think one of the interesting questions in terms of, I was just thinking about you know, not knowing what kind of state we're moving into and I think it is actually very hard to know and it's not going to be a repeat of the past it's going to have these kind of very profoundly different elements in it but I was just thinking you know in terms of there being like a a government with very authoritarian instincts but actually quite weak political power um, with with kind of very little uh, buy-in into its project It, it strikes me that you know culture war is the thing that right-wing politics in its kind of formal mode, in its kind of, you know, uh, occupy, you know office-occupying mode, uh, it, it is, is, you know, that's going to be really, really handy for it. So I, I was thinking it's because this this guy, you know, this this that other Tory eugenics guy, the Ben Bradley guy who's like sterilised the poor, was also tweeting the other day about um, differential pricing for, for black and minority ethnic um, members Call of the it Labour by Party. its name, James. It's institutional racism <laughs> well, against white was, people. This is what he was saying, and mm. of course, he's gone to the ECHR about it. He's been like, "Yes, no, it's this is definitely racism um, mm. against white people." Mm, white people um, need some hobbies, man. 
um, but but it struck it struck me that that is that is a route right and in, into kind of you know mm. really uh, you know animating that sort of white grievance mm. and obviously there is and you in the book you, you're very clear about that the kind of genesis of this stuff in you know, partly it's the new right on the continent and partly there's the the kind of clash of civilizations idea um, so I wonder if you could say just a little about that and how that's playing out because it, it seems to me that that is probably going to be something that that's going to be dominant in terms of, uh, you know, official racism in, ter- in 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 you know across Europe is is this kind of cultural narrative and and particularly sort of assimilation kind of you know uh, as a uh, as a requirement uh, for for uh, you know an impossible requirement in some ways. The trouble with you guys is that you ask such interesting questions, but there is about sort of four different elements yeah, of the question, and I'm concentrating, and you're, 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 you're both... You're both landing me in this terrible yeah. position. You start with this great, and I'm thinking my mind's going there, and then you suddenly <laughs> at the end you whisk in another question. Yeah, so nice. I'm going to break that into yeah. two, if you don't mind. Um, I thought the first bit of it when you were talk was you were talking about the. Uh, the efficiency, if you like, for politicians in launching culture wars uh, in a in a period where actually they have very little power to do much else in terms of controlling mm. the economy. And then the second part of the question was about the clash of civilizations yeah. and how that will play out. So, yeah, if we go back, the whole idea of a clash of civilizations became popular after 9-11. It was Samuel Huntington's thesis. Um, and very, very, um, uh, well, let's call it a crafty little sort of way of moving away from scientific racism, which obviously after the Holocaust, um, you know, to actually openly be a sort of scientific uh, racist and say that, different uh there's a hierarchy of races and some are better than others it's you know alarm bells mm. it's not part of a globalization nice multicultural narrative so we moved from scientific racism moved through the new right to cultural racism the problem wasn't that cultural racists would say it's the problem is that it's not that anyone's superior it's just that we don't mix and we need to be in our sort of different different uh geographical zones if you like and then or or we can coexist but as long as there's a leading culture what the German calls like like culture, which is basically the tyranny of the majority. And that Samuel Huntington refined this kind of way of thinking into this notion of clash of civilizations, which is basically civilizational racism. It's a retake, it's the view that there um there are there is a hierarchy of civilizations rather than a hierarchy of race. So, you know, Western uh, so-called humanistic uh, civilization is superior to Islam, which we, you know, Islam, you know, cuts off people's heads. That and... famous phrase, Islam has bloody borders. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, I mean, again, we go back to the question of the convergence, which uh, hopefully is the theme of the book, that this may have started out as, um, I mean, actually, Samuel Huntington wrote his first essay for Foreign Affairs, which is kind of neoconservative uh, American journal. Um, 
I mean, it is part of the mainstream, isn't mm. it? All mm. the time. I mean, this is where we... Like Douglas Murray and yeah, Henry have, Jackson oh society. Oh, gosh, Douglas Murray. <laughs> oh, God damn. Um, yeah, but Wait, also... Oh, it's on question time. Yeah, oh, Douglas Murray is always on yeah. question time. Um, but it's not just for Douglas Murray. It's, it's for, I mean, if we're looking at the way that we are taught to read issues, like I'm thinking of things like um, child sexual exploitation, um and of course, all these uh, issues put us in a sort of terrible position because as progressive people, we can't be against racism and um, ha- uh, be uh, wishy-washy on, uh, you know, sexism wherever it comes from. Or uh, we can't be against um, racist murders and not be horrified by murders of, of, of young women by uh, sexual predators and rapists. But at the same time, we have to realise that the way that discussions are being framed in the media are drawing us into a civilizational racism. Um, so I see it as the convergence mm. of the, the mainstream with, with the extreme. I mean, if I may, I know that we've been focusing on uh, the racism of the right and we've also been focusing on a material analysis. But I'd like to um, inject... So that's a question more of like a pebble chucked into the, the pond. Are you sure um, it's not a rock? <laughs> a boulder a being boulder. pushed off a cliff by like, you know, wily yeah. coyote. Yeah. Um, I, would, I, I would like to talk a little bit about my own experience of racism on the left and the difficulty of trying to uh, navigate that. Because uh, this week, for instance, uh, on Navarra Media's The Fix... We were talking about Ben Bradley and I just did a little short segment about why uh, if you historicize race and I focused on race rather than racism and use that as my starting point, um, you know, reverse racism, this idea of institutional discrimination against white people on the basis of their whiteness rather than things like class or gender or disability, uh, why that's a fiction. And I expected a great deal of pushback from the right, you know, when you put this piece of content online. But I was uh, surprised, I probably shouldn't have been, by the amount of vitriol from fellow leftists, white leftists, saying that it was racist of me to say that white people couldn't experience racism. Um, And when I said, what's racist about that? Basically, it's like, well, you've used the word race. Um, and that was a really hard thing to do, is to historicize this question of racism and its functions. Uh, last week, um, I put out a tweet um, feeling, oh, expressing an annoyance with, I think, someone in the Labour Party who had said that um, seeing children wearing hijabs was, you know, a frightening turn of events for gender equality and I was like okay well hang on there's no child protection safeguarding issue here so what you're doing is demonizing Muslim parents put that out there and again from the left what feels like sometimes an avalanche of how can you be a leftist or you know a self-identifying communist and defend the hijab um how you know sometimes even less uh sophisticated how can you be a Muslim and a communist at the same time like I don't know my grandma did it so that's why I am Mm-hmm. And when it then comes to challenging in a in a way that doesn't make 
impossible the practice of class solidarity, trying to challenge that racism and dealing with things like um, child sexual abuse within the community while also questioning the framings and the very selective use of stats is that it feels when you're a a Muslim woman of colour trying to do that on the left, it feels like water stuck in your throat. It feels like there's no way you can go with it and it's sometimes suffocating. So I don't know. I don't know if if what I've described matches your observations or if you've got a way of making sense of that or some advice even, because sometimes I feel very lost. Mm. Well, I mean, you've given quite a few examples. Um, I suppose I, again, I'd go a little bit history going back and try and sort of situate this. When I came into the anti-racist struggle, our battle was very much to get the anti-fascist movement to understand that it wasn't just as, that racism wasn't just about fascism. And um you know there was the slogan sort of black and white unite and fight which was all very well but it didn't tell you how to get there if um your white comrades were had actually internalized sort of racist views so i think there was a long struggle there and i think you know to give you some hope because i think if you do take the the historical perspective it it can show you that you can overcome that i think that you know on the on amongst sort of left progressive people you're not in this view that that racism is just about fascism it's about institutional racism it's about structural issues it's about discrimination and i think we we we've, we've got there but i think what you're describing is also in a sense the danger of our time which comes out of a civilizational racism thing and i wrote in i didn't in this book but i wrote in another book um Book that I wrote before this, which is called A Suitable Enemy. Am I plugging which another is great, book? Actually, it's uh, very I much worth picking up. I wrote a book, uh, an essay there, which was about feminism and enlightenment fundamentalism. I think what we have the problem, sort of historically, for us as left people, is that in an earlier stage um, of struggle against oppression, religion was seen in the European tradition as a very repressive force. And I think you find it very, very strongly amongst the sort of feminist left um, and not just white feminists. I mean, you know, we all know the sort of Sarah Khan and all this stuff that's happening is that there are these strong rooted prejudices against religion per se, which means that it's almost like a blinkered, a, a blinkered view um of of uh, understanding the changes that have come in in our, in our society, um, actually we are not living in a religious state. In uh, I mean, one of the things that always uh, not amused me, but um, 
frustrated me in the whole argument for you know we were seeing sort of ten years and you know the book deals a lot with France where this mm. it's it's worse. I don't know if this gives you hope, Ash. It's much worse in France than, than <laughs> oh, it is here Brexit, in eh? terms of this sort of extreme form of secularism. And actually, what we're seeing with the extreme forms of secularism is what I would say is a form of sun fundamentalism, mm. because. If, uh, for me, secularism means that the state does not identify itself with one religion but protects the religious rights and the civil rights of all communities, whereas the extreme secular interests are doing a very fundamental reading of the secularist test and saying no religion in the public space, no hijabs, children wearing hijabs and all this stuff. So actually, you know... These people on the left have not moved with the times. They have not um, understood that in every generation that we have to reinvent our progressive politics in terms of the material reality um, and the cultural changes in front of us. And the point is that I think if you're a progressive, you have to start from the point that you want to fight for as much civil rights as possible for as many communities possible and religious rights are an aspect of civil rights where that ends because of course there are conflicts where that ends is if civil rights of one community cut across the civil rights of another and then we're in a game where we have to work it through ourselves but yeah I just think we're just in another phase where people um, haven't quite moved with the times haven't quite understood uh, where we are but we overcame it in the past and we can overcome it again because if we don't, then we don't really have uh, the right to call ourselves socialists or progressive people. I mean, the, the accusation levelled at you, isn't it, is that, that oh, you, you know, talking about race is distraction from class solidarity. Oh, well, that's the old argument, <laughs> oh, that, that That's the old argument, yeah. Yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. It's not either or. It's yeah, not yeah either well, or. I mean, and, and indeed and, one um, helps constitute the other, right? Well, right, I mean, yeah. Stuart Hall, actually, I mean, I couldn't help because you're talking about sort of Valerie Amos before, and I think Valerie Amos started out as one of Stuart Hall's students, but didn't Stuart Hall say something like racism, modality in which class is yeah. lived? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, hey, people out there, read a bit more. <laughs> yes. I mean, one of the things I think that's interesting, and, and we've, we've spoken about Sivananda in a bit, and I, I was thinking in, in terms of kind of the relationship. So there's a there's an amazing, and I think now quite famous essay, Sivananda, an essay called The Hokum of New Times, really brilliant kind of dissection of uh, maybe like over-optimistic or kind of easy route uh, leftist analysis, right? That that thing that wants uh, everything to be kind of mobile and uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, so that kind of class can dissolve into you know the, the, these new structures of kind of consumerism and stuff like that. And the, the essay is all about kind of asserting that actually, although the surface of politics seems to move very quickly, actually, kind of its fundamental structures move quite slowly and don't really necessarily change that much. So there's a relationship there right so that class actually although the forms in which class is lived changes class is still a fundamental structuring force in society so i wonder when you look at the way in which people think about race and think about class these days what you think is missing because one of the things that, that race and class does the journal of the irr is really actually quite quite strongly uh you know advocate a line that isn't necessarily uh you know, in line with popular 
anti-racism, right? Which says that actually it's maybe a bit more difficult than you than you think. I think what it's missing is solidarity. Um, the essay of Sears that you mentioned, The Hokum of Two Times, um, was actually a riposte to Marxism today. Um, and the idea that putting it in historical perspective that the class struggle was dead and we have all these new social forces out there and it wasn't the economic, it was the sort of, you know, you have Band-Aid and all this stuff and young people, you know, uh, going to pop concerts to end yeah, poverty and all this stuff. And we're going back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so that's what the essay was about. And actually the essay was an attack on identity politics in the sense that... Siva acknowledged and understood as a black man who wrote as a black man. I mean, he wrote a fantastic essay. Mm. One, actually, my personal favourite is The Liberation of a Black Intellectual. Um, that you come to consciousness of oppression through your own identity. It's inevitable, you know. We're not um, Martians, you know. It's our own experience that you come to oppression. But the danger is that if you stay there you will just end up competing against other identities. So I think the point in Hokum of New Times was a warning, a very prescient warning, that if we just remained in identity politics, we would erode socialism because we would just be having gay rights versus gender rights versus, you know, uh, uh, BME rights. And he passionately believed that we all have to come together um, and we have to create solidarity. And he passionately believed in class politics. He hated, absolutely hated the destruction of the brilliance of working class people, which I see all around me. I've been supporting a campaign called Joint Enterprise Not Guilty mm. by Association, which is mostly working class mothers who are brilliant. They should be the leaders of the land. But, you know, the system isn't destroying them, incarcerating their, you know, their sons and their fathers and their daughters. And, you know, he passionately believed in starting with the class and the vulnerable. So, yeah, for me, I hope that if Siva's death will do something, it will encourage people to read that essay and encourage people to understand that what is what is beautiful about us as people in struggle as progressive people is if our politics is not based on the politics of identity but on the politics of solidarity uh we are who we are is what we do we are not our biology for god's sake god i'm bringing him in the, sorry her <laughs> him, her <laughs> we are more than our biology we are more than ident our identity we can transcend that so i feel very passionately mm. about that as you can tell i'm all for bringing astrology in as the new site of antagonism but we'll save that for another show adorno was right about astrology <laughs> oh i don't know about Spoken that. just like a taurus james anyway one of the things that I really wanted to bring up because um, Stephen Anden was probably, along with Stuart Hall, the most formative race theorist for me in my own sense of political development. And I think why that was is because while I had grown up reading, you know, um, speeches from Malcolm X or, you know, I read my fan on and all the rest of it, um, with Stuart Hall and with Stephen Anden, there's a... 
such a rigorous focus on the specificity of uh, British coloniality and the functioning of European racism, which obviously you go into great detail with in this book. And a question that I would like to ask you is that do you think that in popular race slash anti-racist discourse, there's been a bit too much deference to or reliance on the American model of understanding the functioning of racism? I think at the moment um, I would say that I would agree with the the premise there. Um, It's something that kind of disappoints us at the Institute because we have a a Black History collection um, which looks at the anti-racist and anti-colonial tradition in this country. And what we find is that students who come to use it don't know anything about that history. They're coming to look at... They're coming from an American framework where they think there's been a civil rights struggle in here where we didn't have a civil rights movement per se. We had an anti-racist and anti-fascist and anti-imperialist movement. So there is a sense that I think, and this isn't young people's fault, because I think when you're, you know, I've got a daughter who's 22 and I know you do GCSEs and it's about the US civil rights movement. So that history hasn't been handed on a plate to people. You may have to find it. So that's that problem. But I think there is a tendency now, because obviously... People are very excited with the Black Lives Matter movement in America. That that it's 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 kind of like can we just import mm. the American model here? And no, we can't. It's a different society. America was a society built on slavery. Therefore, the term white supremacy, uh, whites, when people talk about white supremacy in America, it has a particular meaning because that white supremacy evolved out the slave society. Slavery was still there in the constitute, you know, the constitute American declaration because if you're a prisoner, you can, you know, you can still be treated as a slave in America. So the understanding of white supremacy in America, I think, has a different understanding. It's more akin to institutional racism. Whereas what I find here is that increasingly we notice uh young students taking terms out of the American Academy and applying it to here. And it doesn't have the same meaning because we're coming, we go back to the question of the material analysis and historical analysis. It it tends to be used in here, which actually I think in, in a way that is quite depressing, is eroding the distinctions that we made through our struggles in, in, against racism in terms of prejudice, Racialism, which is attitudes. So, as Ash was saying, she comes against prejudiced and ra- racialist attitudes uh, amongst the, the left. But you're not in the moment for a moment saying that that is equivalent to um, the murder of Stephen Lawrence. Um, it, uh, and, and what we're seeing is that because these terms are being decontextualized from the American context and brought over here. It's kind of eroding the things that we have struggled for for generations. And certainly, it seems to me that this is quite handy for uh, the state, which, you know, institutional racism, they've done that. As far as they're concerned, there's not any institutional racism 
in the country anymore. The structures aren't racist. Um, Although David Blunkett did chuck it out the window in 2003. So there's a whole four years of acknowledging institutional racism yeah. and then and then, and then it's gone. But so the trouble is if we mix up our struggle against attitudes and prejudice, against our struggle... Um, against the structures that form those things, the, the people who are in power, you know, they're just sitting back and laughing, mm. actually. And that, I think, is going to be a great place to leave it because we're out of time for today. Um, I think the thing for me that I'm taking from this show that I think uh, is really important that I think maybe we should leave our listeners with is the need for and the kind of uh, the, the desire for um, a politics of solidarity and and you you end the book by kind of reaching out to you know to, to say that although the book charters the rise and kind of prominence and power and crimes of these movements that are kind of thick pluralist anti-fascist left socialism uh, is also growing alongside it at the time and i think uh that's just the tonic we need after the end a of that book. A hopeful note, James. A hopeful note from me. Um, that's what uh, Liz's work does to me. So, new you know, year, it's new a good you, baby. Thing. It's a good thing. Uh, Liz Fakiti, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Cheers. Uh, follow IR News on Twitter and get involved uh, online. We'll be back uh, same time, same place next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. This show is brought to you by Navara Media. To find articles, videos and more audio content like this, head to navaramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarro Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarro Media. Media for a different politics.